Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute before your podcast starts to talk about something very important to me. Black Lives Matter. I, Sarah Strumming, am committed to anti-racism and the companies that I oversee, the Cognitive Canine and Cogdog Radio, are also committed to anti-racism. I recognize my privilege here and I recognize that I have a platform where I can use my voice and I intend to do so in such a way that combats systemic racism because it absolutely affects the field of dog training and it's time that everybody with a platform uses it for good. I'm gonna link a list of resources for ways that you can support black, indigenous, and people of color and also just some educational resources that I've found helpful in my anti-racism journey. And I hope that we can all stand together to dismantle racism in dog training and therefore in the world. Cheers. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And if we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. All right. Let's talk quadrants. Dog training is full of unhelpful jargon, and some of that jargon is the four quadrants of operant conditioning, which are positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, and negative punishment. So I'm going to talk about what these are. I'm also going to talk about why they are an imperfect model to view dog training through. And I'm going to talk about, I guess, where I stand um, on the use of the quadrants. So the first thing we've got to do is define all of these silly words so that we're all on the same page. Um, So a couple of helpful things. When I say positive or negative, think plus sign, minus sign. Think math rather than emotions and feeling, and that will help you. And then also think, you know, when I say reinforcement think building behavior and when i say punishment think suppressing behavior okay and i i that that helps me to keep the quadrant straight in my head so positive reinforcement the one that we talk about all the time that just means that an addition of an appetitive stimulus makes behavior happen more okay negative reinforcement the removal of an aversive stimulus that makes behavior happen more Okay, so remember, reinforcement means behavior is happening more. It's building behavior. Positive punishment is the addition of an aversive stimulus that makes behavior happen less. And then negative punishment is the removal of an appetitive stimulus 
that makes behavior happen less. Okay, and so what do I mean by appetitive and aversive? Appetitive means something that the learner will act to obtain or acquire. And aversive is something, is defined as something that the learner will act to avoid. Okay, so there are scenarios in which something that we would label an aversive stimulus is acting as a positive reinforcer. And there are situations in which what we would assume is a positive reinforcer is acting as a positive punisher. So don't think about food versus choke chain here. Think about the addition of a stimulus or the removal of a stimulus and that has an effect on behavior, okay? In dog training, I'm just gonna give a few examples so that we can all hopefully be on the same page, but these are gonna be simple examples and we're gonna get more in depth on this. Um, positive let's A positive reinforcement scenario might be that my dog lies down on a dog bed in my office and I throw cookies at him and I observe that the behavior of lying on the dog bed in my office increases. Always, 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 these things are defined by their function. So that means that me throwing a cookie at my dog on the dog bed does not qualify as positive reinforcement until I observe that that behavior increases. So without a change in behavior, we cannot say that that quadrant is at play. Negative reinforcement might be that I release pressure on a collar when the dog sits. So I pull up on the collar, the dog sits his butt down, and I release pressure on the collar. So the removal of that collar pressure increases the sit. So if I observe that the dog sits more readily, um, sits more often, then negative reinforcement is at play, or I can assume that it is. Uh, positive punishment. My dog is barking, I spray him in the face with water, and barking decreases. Okay, so that's the addition of an aversive stimulus, the water, that decreases behavior. And now you might be starting to think about how the same stimulus can operate as a positive reinforcer. I definitely have a dog that would appreciate being sprayed in the face with water, and you might too. So we'll get into that. And then finally, negative punishment is my dog barks out the front window and I remove him from the living room. Okay, so I just remove him from access to um, his family and barking out the front window decreases. So if I observe that barking out the front window decreases, then I am indeed, then there is a punisher at play and I'm gonna assume it's a negative punisher because I removed a stimulus. Now, we could paint it any which way and call, we could maybe call that positive punishment too, but let's not get too complicated quite yet. We've got plenty of time <laughs> to get complicated here. So in dog training, here's the problem. We've got this like pervasive anti this or that quadrant culture going on. We've got a lot of people who say, I only use positive reinforcement or plenty of people who say they use positive reinforcement and negative punishment. And then we've got trainers who, um, this tends to be people who label themselves as balanced trainers, who say that balanced is defined as all four quadrant usage. Um, and I asked on my Facebook page at one point, you know, if you're a balanced trainer, can you tell me what that means? And a lot of people said this, they said use of all four quadrants. And so basically we have this kind of divide between trainers who 
utilize all four quadrants intentionally and trainers who um, limit to themselves, and I'm putting the word limit in quotations, to two quadrants maybe or one. And the problem is that it is more complicated than that, you guys. It's so much more complicated than that. We don't always decide what quadrant is at play, the animal does. And also, there are always layers to motivation. We are never, ever only operating in one quadrant. If you think about human behavior for a second, you will see how clear that is. Okay, so if I go into my inbox and check email, what is the motivation behind that behavior? I would first probably say negative reinforcement because the removal of the the unread emails in my inbox is reinforcing that behavior. So the removal of that stimulus is reinforcing or building the check email behavior. But I might also say positive reinforcement because sometimes I get a really nice email from a client um, and sometimes I get paid (laughs) by checking my email, right? And so we could say both of those things, but there are also aversives at play with checking email. I might get an email from somebody who's upset with me, um, telling me that I'm wrong about something or telling me, you know, how dare I recommend they take their dog off leash. And I, you know, I might get an email in telling me that a bill is overdue or, you know, that I missed an appointment or like there are a lot of aversive emails that could show up. So what maintains this behavior if there are punishers at play is complicated and messy because behavior is complicated and messy. And it's important for us to put it into simple terms so that we can understand it and then grow our understanding to encompass all of the nuance that can be involved. So to talk a little bit about this nuance, um, I'm first just going to say there are no good and bad quadrants. There's no, you know, positive reinforcement doesn't have a halo above it and positive punishment doesn't have devil horns. Okay, so this isn't how this works. These are all kind of natural forces like gravity that are always at play and we can manipulate things to help build the behaviors that we're interested in building. And what we should be concerned about to me is the level of coercion that we are employing rather than what quadrant we're operating in. And I'm going to get into that in a minute, but let's look at the four quadrants while talking about the same addition or removal of um, the same stimulus. Okay, so I'm going to say the stimulus is petting. So petting the dog, um, which we think of as a nice thing. We think of as a positive reinforcer. But again, it's not a positive reinforcer until it builds behavior. So keep that in mind. So if I tell my dog to sit and she does and then I pet her and she sits more often when I ask her to, we're talking positive reinforcement. The petting is working as positive reinforcement. But if I start petting her, I say sit, she sits and then I stop petting her and she sits more often, now we're talking negative reinforcement and we're still talking about the same stimulus. And I could name two different dogs in my household that would operate these two separate ways. Now let's talk about punishment. If I pet the dog when the dog, after the dog sits, so same scenario as the positive reinforcement scenario because that positive is still at play. So positive punishment, positive reinforcement, you are adding a stimulus. So if I add petting and petting decreases behavior, so the dog sits and I pet him, 
and then he sits less, then the petting has punished the sitting, right? So uh, versus if he sits and I pet him and he sits more, then the petting is reinforcing the sitting. And then in a negative punishment realm, so that's again removal of sitting, if I stop petting the dog when he sits and the dog avoids sitting, I have now helped to punish sitting by removing the stimulus. So hopefully that didn't make it more confusing, but I want to be very clear that basically any stimulus can act as a positive reinforcer, but can also act as a punisher. And it can act as a negative reinforcer, and it can act as a negative punisher, right? So what's fascinating to me is that the same stimulus which you add to build behavior, so the same stimulus that will act as a positive reinforcer, will act as a negative punisher if removed, okay? So if you flip it and you start removing it rather than adding it, you are now um, utilizing the same stimulus as a negative punisher. And that's because if the stimulus builds behavior, it is appetitive. It is something the animal will work to gain. And therefore, if it's appetitive, then the removal of it might act as a negative punisher. I certainly have a dog who I have actually used petting as a positive punisher for barking. So she barks at me when I am making food for the other dogs and she has the pun the petting, I'm sorry, the barking has decreased hugely in just enormous amounts when I decided that I would just pet her and love on her every time she did it. She's a sweet dog. She likes me. I pet and love on her all day long. In that particular scenario, though, it is punishing the barking. And why? Why is because I'm giving her something that might be seen as an appetitive stimulus in other scenarios. I'm giving her something that feels aversive to her in that scenario because it is in conflict with the motivation, the natural motivation of wanting to eat the food. And that might happen in a lot of scenarios, right? So your dog is barking and lunging at other dogs and you want to reinforce the absence of that behavior. You want to reinforce like a sit or eye contact with food and eating in and of itself is in direct conflict with the natural motivation of the bark lunge in the first place. And so you can actually hurt your progress that way. So understand that Negative reinforcement, which is kind of uh, the quadrant that I think is maybe the least understood in the field because we kind of understand it as a pressure and release type of situation. The trainer puts pressure on the animal. The animal does whatever the thing is, and then the trainer lets off the pressure, which it can certainly, certainly work like that. But it's at play constantly, and I would say adult humans are mostly motivated by negative reinforcement. You do the dishes because then there are no more dishes in the sink, negative reinforcement. Uh, you check your email, I'm gonna say still the primary reinforcer for that is negative reinforcement because the inbox number gets smaller. So we can do this a few things. We can utilize uh, negative reinforcement by manipulation of the environment. We can remove the trigger for when the dog is exhibiting calm behaviors. Uh, Grisha Stewart's BAT protocol operates like this, as well as uh, constructional aggression treatment, CAT operates like this. And I wanna say that that is not the same as a trainer intentionally inflicting discomfort 
on a dog so that the trainer can then turn off that discomfort. So if you are intentionally inflicting discomfort to then be able to turn it off and build behavior that way, I'm going to say that is in a different category, even though it is still negative reinforcement, from manipulating the natural discomforts that exist in the environment to build behavior. And why do I think that these are different? Because of the level of coercion involved. And how do we know what the level of coercion is? Is how much control the animal has over the situation. So if I intentionally inflict something on you, so I give a cue and I, I hit the button on my e-collar and you start to feel um, electric stimulation and then you respond to the cue and I let off on the e-collar, then I'm inflicting discomfort in order to be able to turn that off, okay? And I wanna honestly give you a disclaimer. Um, Electronic collars are not something that's in my repertoire. It is one of the few tools that I have not used. So I'm using it as an example in such a way that an e-collar trainer did explain to me, but I would appreciate it if you didn't send me emails explaining e-collar training because um, it isn't a tool that I actually want to put on my table either. So, and if you have it on your table and you're a listener, that's perfectly fine, you guys, I'm not, I'm really not condemning it at all. Something that I did learn though, uh, back in the day was how to do a force fetch. So how to pinch my dog's ear until he opened his mouth and put the dumbbell inside. And that is the trainer intentionally inflicting discomfort on the dog in order to turn the discomfort off when the desired behavior is achieved. And I'm just gonna say, I wanna sing from the rooftops that that is different from me moving the dog away from a trigger or an aversive stimulus, maybe a man in a hat, when my dog exhibits calm behavior. So also understand positive reinforcement always implies negative punishment. So if we withhold a treat, if we're giving a treat, then we will also withhold the treat on some reps, right? So, and if withholding the food is the same as, if you view it as the same as removing the dog from maybe a social opportunity, so giving the dog a time out, then I'm again gonna disagree with you. Um, they're both a negative punishment, but the level of coercion involved is different. And the level of choice that the animal has is always what matters most. And if I, if the dog knows, if you do the quick lie down that I just asked for, you will get a piece of food. And if you don't, you just won't get the piece of food. If the dog knows that those are the choices, then we have a dog that can clearly choose to eat or not eat. Whereas if I'm simply inflicting a negative punishment procedure or trying to on the dog for maybe, you know, maybe he uh, is begging at the table and I take him and put him in a crate in the other room. I'm going to say that that looks different because the dog is not given options to get what the true motivation is and the true motivation in the begging at the table scenario would be eating. Understand you guys that motivations are complex. If an animal is starving, giving a piece of food for sitting is probably more in the negative reinforcement realm than the positive reinforcement realm because now we're talking relief. Relief of hunger is the reinforcer at play rather than just getting to eat something that you know is special and tasty. And the hunger then 
is what we'd call a motivating operation. And there are always numerous motivating operations at play. So if we go back to my email example, I have a motivating operation about the, um, one of my motivating operations might be get these emails, you know, answered to get that inbox number lower. I'm not gonna say zero because it's never at zero. <laughs> um, one of my other motivating operations might be though that I'm expecting an email from a client or maybe I'm expecting a, re a reply back from somebody who's gonna sign up for something. You know, There are always different motivating operations at play and there are always different layers of motivation because there's pretty much never only one quadrant at work, you guys. So the guiding principle to me should be how much freedom and control the learner has and how can I always provide more? So meaning that, you know, if the dog knows he has two choices, do agility with me or sit in a crate, then I'm going to say he has less control over this situation than I'd like him to have. And if we have, you know, an animal in a zoo that, or I'm going to say my chickens, I have uh, six baby chickens right now, and I like to go out there and have them eat from my hand every day. Um, because eating from my hand is something that I may use to teach them things in the future, but also I think it's cute and I think they're cute. And so um, talk about layers of motivating operations for me. I go out and have them eat from my hand. If I didn't have food available to them in their enclosure and they could only eat from my hand, now we're talking coercion and now we're talking um, less freedom over the, over the outcomes for those animals. So it's important to me that they have the exact same food available in a bowl and they do and you guys, they still come eat out of my hand. And I might stick a treat, a uh, special thing like a mealworm um, in my hand on occasion to you know, just double up on the motivating factors for my chickens. But it would not be fair to me to only feed them from my hand for specific behaviors, because now we're talking a level of coercion that I'm uncomfortable with in the same sense that I would not withhold food from one of my dogs in order to get better work from my dogs. So when you're thinking quadrants, First of all, just don't. It's such an unhelpful lens <laughs> to be thinking about. Don't think how, don't think about what quadrant am I in right now? Because guaranteed you're in more than one at any given time. And like I said, there's not devil horns on this one and a halo on that one. Think how much control am I giving my learner? And can I give my learner any more control? That's what I want you to think. All right, I've got some Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Lena, who says, thanks for an awesome podcast. Hey, thanks, Lena. This is not a question, but I would love to hear your thoughts about sensitive dogs. I have a dog that seems to shut down in new environments. He's a one-year-old miniature American Shepherd, and he has a hard time eating when he feels unsure. I'm now working on eating in the car, so we have a place to go when all the outside environment um, gets too hard for him. What would you do in those situations? I feel really helpless when he's not eating and I don't know what to do. It's even hard for me to cope with his reactivity when I can't use any type of counter conditioning and live in an area where I can't find dog TV, like you mentioned in one episode. Thanks for all the great information. Uh, this is from Lena and Louie from Sweden. So thanks, Lena, for your question. And understand that 
It's not uncommon for a dog that feels uncomfortable to not eat. If you think about yourself in an uncomfortable or even slightly stressful situation, are you hungry? Um, I know for me, you know, I hate going to the dentist. And if somebody offered me even one of my favorite foods in the dentist office uh, waiting room, I would refuse it. I wouldn't want to eat. And that doesn't mean that I'm panicking. And it doesn't mean that I'm not functional. But it does mean that I can't eat right now. And that can be really tough when we're dealing with our animals. Um, As you said, you feel helpless, and I know that feeling. You are on the right track to help him eat in the car so that you have kind of a backup system in that sense. And I do understand that not everywhere has kind of dog park, dog TV types of situations. I've never been to Sweden. Hopefully I'll get there one of these days. but I understand that, you know, different cultures are different. And so what I would be really thinking about is other ways to gauge Louis's comfort. Also just helping him out with some low-level exposure to things. Like maybe you guys sit together in the back of your car and watch the world go by. Um, and maybe you park yourselves on a park bench that's pretty far off the beaten path and watch the world go by and just kind of be still together and don't push the issue. He may need to just have some of what I call remedial socialization in the sense that he goes out to some environments and is allowed to just sit and observe it in a safe way for him. And keep working on uh, the eating in the car and maybe think about Can you hop out of the car and eat one treat and then hop back in? That sort of thing. Because having food is important, but the unwillingness to eat is really common. And it's one of the reasons that I go a straight desensitization approach rather than attempting a counter conditioning approach. Uh, Just one of the many reasons. So best of luck to you, Lena. This one comes from Diane. Thoughts and ideas regarding using veterinary services like dental cleaning with the current COVID restrictions. I will say that I have been putting off some veterinary procedures for my dogs because of the COVID restrictions. Um, That has to do with the government restrictions, but it also has to do with me, you know, not wanting a veterinarian to use vital PPE on my dogs for unnecessary procedures. Um, Having said that, my dogs are overdue for a couple of things and they are going into the vet next week. Nothing, no no large amount of PPE should have to be used for my dogs. And so that's kind of how I feel about it. All right, from Madison, a dog that experiences extreme discomfort when created in a moving vehicle versus created in a stopped vehicle. So in the moving vehicle, the dog is tense, frozen, panting. Stopped vehicle, the dog is relaxed and able to sleep. So um, it seemed, she goes on to say, this seemed to happen fairly sudden, went from sleeping in a moving car to the tense, panting behavior and unable to eat. What are the steps towards changing a dog's crate feelings in the moving car? Well, usually this is about motion sickness. Usually this is about the dog feels yucky when the car moves. And so this is a veterinary question more so than um, a trainer question. And the first order of business would be to combat any potential nausea that's going on in the dog. And a lot of times... Nausea just produces anxiety and it's really possible that before when you felt like the dog was relaxed, the dog was lying down nauseated. So not necessarily throwing up, but was lying down nauseated and started to learn that when the car moves, I feel nauseated and then started to work um, herself into a 
more panicked state about the anticipation of nausea. So handling any potential sickness and then handling it again, handling the anxiety from a pharmaceutical place would be where I would begin. Um, and then after that, you could certainly go down a behavior modification road, but it would, it would be after you handle it from a pharmaceutical standpoint. Deborah, looking forward to upcoming Wednesday night chat about planning training. Is anyone else struggling with getting the gumption to train in the face of so much grief and fear? How to get past this because my dog and I need each other. Deborah, I hear you and I have days right now where I can't train and that's okay. So the first thing you do is you forgive yourself for that because there's nobody, you know, standing at the top saying you must train your dog or you're a bad person. Um, it's just not real. So first things first, let go. It's okay if you don't get any training done. For my dogs, um, they really enjoy training and it is a big part of their enrichment in their lives. And so I do feel some pressure on that front to train them, but I have easy projects that I do on the days when I just don't feel great. Um, and then really prioritize decompression walks. Go on a decompression walk anytime you don't feel like training. You guys will feel so much better together. All right, last one this week comes from Bronwyn. Thinking about decompression walks and enrichment since Hurricane is entire. So um, Bronwyn's from Australia and in the States, we would say that Hurricane is intact um, and will remain so, being hopefully being a breeding bitch. How and what would you do for a bitch in season to make up for the potential lack of decompression walks? And I'm thinking we'll have to hit really remote locations, remain on lead or just straight up not go um, and focus on a lot of enrichment at home. So yes, you would increase your enrichment at home, but also I still take my um, bitches in season on decompression walks. They're just on a long line and a harness instead of being free so that I can, you know, so they don't run off into the woods. I have intact males also, so I don't want them to run off in the woods with one of the boys as well as we've got coyotes the which will breed a bitch <laughs> no no problem and i don't want any coyote mixed puppies so um increase enrichment at home but also do try to make sure that they still get out for some decompression and you know be the most careful around when the when she's actually breedable because she's not actually breedable for the entire three week kind of process so um that's something too also keep in mind so you know essentially you take all the precautions that you can and if you feel like you can't take her out you do need to increase your enrichment at home thanks for listening be sure to rate review and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice if you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron. 